Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Helping Neighbors Celebrate with Culturally Responsive Foods by the Food Bank of the, of the Rockies. From Denverite, I'll be reading What We Know About Denver's Response to More Migrant Arrivals and How Denverites Can Help by Rebecca Tauber. And Meet the Barber Giving Out Free Haircuts to Unhoused Denverites at Center, Civic Center Park by Isaac Vargas. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading, Cherry Creek Students' Parents Say Anti-Semitic Incidents Have Become Common, by Taylor Shaw. And Douglas County Changes Fairgrounds Policy After Drag Show Backlash, by Ellis Arnold. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Helping Neighbors Celebrate with Culturally Responsive Foods by the Food Bank of the Rockies. The holy month of Ramadan, which started May 22nd, is considered one of the most joyous times of the year for the more than 70,000 Muslims in Denver. During Ramadan, community members of the Islamic faith typically fast during daylight hours, beginning their day with suhoor, morning meal, before the first prayer of the day and breaking their fast traditionally by eating dates before iftar, evening meal, which is normally eaten with friends and family. Eid al-Fitar, meaning festival of breaking the fast, is the most important holiday that follows the month of Ramadan. It is a time for great feasts, the giving of gifts to children, and spending time with friends and family. The celebration often includes a variety of traditional foods, including baklava, stuffed dates, kanafa, and many other foods. However, finding the ingredients and foods to make these dishes in Denver can be especially difficult if you're on a limited budget or you've seen your SNAP benefits reduced. Food Bank of the Rockies Culturally Responsive Food Initiative works to overcome access barriers to important ingredients and foods experienced by clients from diverse cultural backgrounds. The program collects demographic information and feedback on food preferences from clients, partners, and cultural community organizations to develop food lists specific to the different populations served by the food bank. To ensure Denver's Muslim community is able to celebrate Ramadan with the types of foods that are traditionally associated with it, Food Bank of the Rockies sources several items to make available to hunger relief partners like the downtown Denver Islamic Center. These foods included halal chicken drumsticks, dried dates, raisins, almonds, pistachios, honey, minced garlic, and more. Throughout the year, in addition to sourcing specific items for holidays such as Ramadan, Food Bank of the Rockies operates 30 culturally responsive mobile pantries in Colorado and three in Wyoming and makes available as many culturally responsive food items as possible to hunger relief partners. Nourishing our communities means more than just putting food on plates, said Ashley Newell, manager of the Culturally Responsive Food Program at Food Bank of the Rockies. It means listening to our neighbors, respecting varying cultural values, and meeting those needs and desires to the best of our ability. 
The next two articles are from Denverite. What we know about Denver's response to more migrant arrivals and how Denverites can help by Rebecca Tauber. On a Thursday morning at Denver's newly opened Migrant Reception Center, around 30 people stood in line waiting to register with city staff. Another 30 or so sat in two groups, one for people looking to travel elsewhere beyond Denver and another for people looking to stay. The majority of people we saw were waiting for bus tickets out of town. Tables full of granola bars, water bottles, and coloring pages and crayons for kids lined the room. For the second time in six months, the city of Denver has mobilized emergency operations for migrants arriving in the city from the border. Daily arrival numbers jumped back into triple digits, last seen in late December and early January. They had dropped dropped back down to single and double digits the past few months. But a combination of better weather along the border and the expiration of the Trump-era Title 42, which allowed immigration officials to quickly expel migrants crossing the border without authorization, has sent those numbers up again. On Wednesday, 286 people arrived in Denver. Here's what we know about how Denver is responding to new arrivals across city departments and working with private partners. When migrants arrive, the city directs them to the reception center. There, people split between those looking to stay in the city and those looking to travel elsewhere. Like earlier this year, Denver is buying people bus tickets to other U.S. cities. The city did not say how many tickets it has purchased in recent days, but Denver Human Services estimates that the city has paid for around 4100 since January. But even those moving on to other cities often need a place to stay for a night or two until their departure, something that's causing a headache for city officials and has them calling on private partners to offer shelter space. Denver is currently operating five shelters with private partners. City officials say about 1,000 people are staying in those now and that they are over capacity. Unlike in December and January, the city is not using rec centers for housing, and Mayor Michael Hancock said the city is not planning to use rec centers that way at the moment. After leaving partner shelters, people can either travel to other cities where they might have friends or family already living in the U.S., or work on establishing routes in Denver. Denver appears to have backtracked on a policy that would have restricted which migrants the city could shelter in order to get federal reimbursements. At a press conference Thursday, city officials said Denver is serving everyone who arrives in the city. In April, officials announced a new policy in which Denver would only offer emergency shelter and other services to people who had come in contact with Department of Homeland Security, DHS, officials and thus had an alien number, A number, tracking their case in the immigration system. The policy came as a requirement for receiving federal reimbursement for emergency costs. Immigration advocates cautioned that the policy could lead to more people on the streets. But this week, officials said the number of people arriving without A numbers is very small and that Denver is working with community partners to make sure the city can serve everyone. Funding Denver's emergency response remains an issue. So far, Denver's officials say the city has spent around $16 million coming from the general fund and various agencies. The city has also gotten at least $2.5 million from the state, and Hancock said just about $909,000 in federal reimbursements. But city officials called for even more help Thursday. We don't have unlimited resources, said Chief Financial Officer Margaret Denuser. 
This is an unbudgeted situation for us. And so we are digging into the toolbox and, of course, reaching out to both the federal government and the state for additional resources that might be available. Like in December, Hancock called on stronger federal support and cautioned that the city was looking at service cuts. The mayor did not specify what those service cuts might look like, but added that Denver would not disrupt, disrupt strategies to serve people experiencing homelessness. In D.C., Colorado Congresswomen Yadira Caraveo and Diana DeGette sent a letter to President Joe Biden pushing for more funding to support cities like Denver. It is vital that future rounds of funding are robust for both interior and border communities to, at minimum, reimburse communities such as Denver for the full cost of expenses incurred while responding to the influx of migrants, they wrote Thursday. Hancock also said Denver is trying to respond as best as it can with the effects of Title 42's expiration. We knew that this was going to expire in May. Most conventional wisdom said we were going to see an influx in June, he said. We didn't expect this early influx. Denise Chang has been working with migrants as the founder of Colorado Hosting Asylum Network, a nonprofit that has helped resettle some families in the area. She said she knew the city had been discussing more arrivals for months. I don't know how prepared you can be without knowing how many people are going to arrive and not having the funding to provide them, Chang said. So they, did they really know this was going to happen? Yes. Have they been planning for it? Yes. Does that mean that they can handle it? They're trying. Hancock said the best way for people to support migrants is with money. The mayor pointed people interested in donating to the Newcomers Fund, launched by Hancock and Governor Jared Polis in December. In an update, the city said two organizations will begin, begin accepting clothing and other physical donations in the coming days. The Denver Dream Center at 2165 Curtis Street will serve as the main donation site starting May 17th. The Potter's House of Denver on 9495 East Florida Avenue will also accept donations starting May 22nd, though anyone wanting to drop off goods will first have to set up a time with the organization by reaching out to donations at denvergov.org. Meet the Barber Giving Out Free Haircuts to Unhoused Denverites at Civic Center Park by Isaac Vargas. A tattoo that reads, Pray, Love, Forgive, is tattooed just above Cesar Polito's forehead. Polito is a barber that volunteers at Mutual Aid Monday dinners, giving out free haircuts to unhoused community members. His gold-plated teeth match the gold-colored clippers that he uses to cut hair at Denver's Civic Center Park. I'm making people feel better. I love that, Polito said. They could be going through the worst time in their life. They get a haircut and walk out of here feeling great. You feel me? That's the biggest thing for me. This October, Polito will reach a big moment for himself. Three years of sobriety. I used to be big on cocaine and Xanax. That was my big thing. Xanax to go to sleep, cocaine to stay up, Polito said. My wife was taking care of the kids all day, so when I got home, I felt like I needed to help. Polito was raised by his father and grandmother in South Central Los Angeles. At the age of 15, he moved to Florida to live with his mother shortly after his father was sent to prison. I was already deep in South Central LA, so it was like I brought everything I knew. Instead of what my mom wanted for us, a better life, I just chose to do dumb shit. 
drinking, hanging out, skipping, gangs, all that stuff. As an adolescent, drugs, underage drinking, and instances of breaking and entering landed Polito on house arrest. My officer one day was like, yo, you need to do something with yourself or I'm going to send you back to jail, Polito said. I was already lining people up, saving some money so I could chip in, smoke a blunt. I'm cutting out the house right in the neighborhood. I went to barber school and right about when I was finishing up, I got a case and they ended up sending me to prison. Now 19, Polito says he wasn't allowed to cut hair in prison because of his gang affiliation. He also was smoking K2, a synthetic weed that doesn't show up on traditional drug tests that screen for marijuana. I was doing K2 and smoking cigarettes in there because if we pissed dirty, we'd get 60 days in the box, Polito said. So once I'm getting out, I still kind of had a habit. Polito ended up serving five years of a six-year sentence. Once he got out, an old friend had just opened up a barber shop and invited him to work for him. But you know... We were all hanging out and doing crazy stuff again and eventually doing drugs, Polito said. He ended up back in jail on his 30th birthday. I went like super nuts for my 30th and ended up in a mental hospital, Polito said. My wife was like, if you don't stay there more than the little time you're supposed to, you're not going to be able to be with your kids. So I got the help. I stayed there for like a week. That's when I really put my all into cutting hair. Looking to get away from the wrong crowds, Polito moved to Denver a little less than a year ago with his family. By the grace of God, we had a mutual friend that connected me with Cesar, said Derek Cruz, owner of Game 7 Barbershop, where Polito works. He landed at the shop, came in at the perfect time. We had a booth that was open, and it just played out perfectly. He's brought a whole other mentality that's helped us grow the shop and network. It's great. In the last six months, Polito has set up his own LLC, moved into an apartment in the Washington Park neighborhood, and voted for the first time with the help of state representative and former mayoral candidate Leslie Harrod at Hiawatha Davis Jr. Recreation Center on Election Day. He didn't think, having a fel- felony, that he could vote, said Brittany Cat- Catalanas, founder of Denver-based company Be Connected. It's a profound impact in our city just by enabling someone to not just find a job, but Cesar became an LLC, a business owner. That's huge. And now he's volunteering. He's doing his thing. He's giving back. Catalina's first met Polito in October of 2022. Her company, Be Connected, works to address why people lose housing and create housing security for both renters and property owners. Polito credits Catalanas for connecting him with resources across the city. She's been connecting me to everybody. She sent me the mutual aid and said, Look, they need a barber, Polito said. I got in contact with them. I told them I was bringing a chair, but they didn't realize I was bringing an actual barber chair. So when I brought that, they kind of freaked. That's the beauty of his chair, Catalanas said. That chair starts a conversation and instantly makes someone feel beautiful. Housing and self-care are so interconnected. Polito said he likes being out there as a testimony for those going through their own tough times and loves being part of the Mutual Aid Monday community. I'm here to do what I do. I love this, man, Polito said. I feel like I'm in a position where I'm not doing too good either, but, you know, I want to give back with something I can. I'm just a barber trying to spread some love and help people out. 
He hopes that other barbers will come out and donate their time at events like Mutual Aid Mondays. Bringing everybody closer together, especially like people in high places, people in low places, bring them together, help each other out somehow. I want everybody to be able to call somebody when they need something. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Cherry Creek students' parents say anti-Semitic incidents have become common by Taylor Shaw. Swastikas etched on the bathroom walls. Students doing Hitler salutes. Pennies being thrown near Jewish students. And students telling Jewish people to go back to the gas chambers. These are some of the anti-Semitic experiences that students, parents, and teachers shared during the May 8th Cherry Creek School District Board of Education meeting. This is what's happening in the hallways of your schools, said resident Ricky Moore. Our kids do not feel safe. Our kids are scared to say they're Jewish for fear of retaliation. That is why we are here. This has to change, she added. Moore was among a crowded room of people who gathered at Cherokee Trail High School. Many described instances where students experienced anti-Semitism within Cherry Creek schools and expressed feeling unsafe. When Emily, a student at Campus Middle School, took the microphone, she described a time when another student said his brother and his friend told a Jewish kid to go back to the gas chambers. Being Jewish herself, Emily said it really affected her, and she asked why that was even said and why the boy was sharing it. In response, the boy said it did not even matter, she recalled. And that's where he was wrong, she said, explaining she has relatives who were in the Holocaust. So I spoke up once again, and I said, actually, it does matter, because I'm Jewish, and people shouldn't be saying anything like that. He opened his mouth and said, ew, then you should go back to the gas chambers too, she recalled. This left me scared to go back to school every single day from that point forward. The stories came a week after the principal of campus middle school, Lisa Stahl, sent a letter to families informing them the school received reports of students drawing swastikas following the school's Holocaust presentation on April 28th. This creates an unacceptable environment of intolerance and exclusion in our school community. When these events are reported to the administration, we address them immediately and those involved face disciplinary consequences, Stahl wrote. It was not mentioned in Stahl's letter how many students were involved or what disciplinary consequences the students faced. Lauren Snell, a public information officer for Cherry Creek Schools, said May 8th via email that due to privacy protections for students, she cannot go into details about student discipline. As soon as the school board learned about the anti-Semitic drawings over the weekend, administrators investigated and took immediate action. Any student found to be involved will face disciplinary consequences, Snell wrote. During the board meeting, Superintendent Christopher Smith addressed the incident and said students were drawing swastikas on other students. Administrators investigated the incident and took immediate action. Multiple students are facing disciplinary action, and any other students found to be involved will also face disciplinary consequences, Smith said. We do not tolerate hate in this district of any kind against any group. After Moore learned about the incident, she posted about it on her Facebook page on April 29th. Then she created an online letter to Smith that, according to the letter, has been signed by more than 250 people. In the letter, she wrote, 
What shocked me more than this incident was that when I posted it about it on my Facebook page, it took less than 24 hours for over 60 families from the district to write me and say that not only do they support everything I said, but over one-third of them have had anti-Semitic incidents occur at the middle school and high school level this year alone. For example, she said a family told her that anti-Semitism and harassment is so constant that the mom has told her children not to tell anyone they're Jewish. Moore said in the letter that the community would like to discuss constructing a committee specifically to address the issue of anti-Semitism in the district, building a protocol on how schools will address these issues in the future, and providing lessons to students and teachers alike about modern-day anti-Semitism. We want real conversations, and we'd like to meet with you to see how the district can do better and be better, Moore wrote. Our grandparents and great-grandparents did not die in concentration camps, or, by the grace of God, survive them so that a mere 75 years later, their descendants would have to be scared to say they are Jewish. Before the public comment portion of the board meeting, several members of the school board took a moment to discuss the campus middle school incident and reiterated hate will not be tolerated. As part of his comments, Smith said he wanted to apologize that May is Asian African Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Jewish American Heritage Month. And it saddens me and disappoints me and frustrates me that my comments tonight are around hate, Smith said. And I want to share tonight that I'm not naive to think that this only happens at campus. I know that students are microaggressed across the district. Also, I received comments from the lived experiences of our students here tonight. I want to say, as the leader of this district, I'm sorry. I'm absolutely sorry that these are the things that happened to you in our district, Smith said. He said he is committed to making the school district better and asked that the work be a partnership between the school district and the community. I would like to thank the parents who showed up in my office today to help me get better, to be a better leader in this district, he said. And again, I'd just like to say thank you for being here this evening. In her email, Snell said the school has met with the Anti-Defamation League and administrators have addressed the recent behaviors with 8th grade classrooms and reinforced expectations with students. Scott Levin, the Mountain State's regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, was among those who gave a public comment at the board meeting. He said he was proud of the community for showing up and talking about the consequences of anti-Semitism, especially to the students. We measured last year 3,697 anti-Semitic incidents in the United States, an increase of 36%, Levin said, referring to the Anti-Defamation League's 2022 audit of anti-Semitic incidents. According to the report, 494 anti-Semitic incidents happened at non-Jewish K-12 schools in 2022, representing an increase of 49% from 2021. But what I'm really getting at is how little we know, how little we measure, Levin said. So what I'm going to ask you is, let's think a little more proactively. Talking about changing the culture and climate, it can't always be after the anti-Semitic incidents take place, he added. He said it is important to work ahead of time and to include the school board, the educators, and the students. Let's try and take a more holistic approach, Levin said. Our mission is not only to stop anti-Semitism, but also to secure justice and fair treatment to all.
Douglas County Changes Fairgrounds Policy After Drag Show Backlash by Ellis Arnold. It's not every day that a Douglas County Commissioner's meeting includes a quote of Rihanna lyrics. Several area residents at the meeting expressed concern with last year's drag show event at the county fairgrounds in Castle Rock, a topic that gave way to a broader discussion about a parent's ability to choose what kinds of entertainment their kids can view. The meeting also heard accusations of indoctrination of children. Joy Overbeck, a Parker resident, residents videos of performances she took issue with at the May 9th meeting. She referred to a performer belting out a song with the lyrics, I may be bad, but I'm perfectly good at it. Sex is in the air. I don't care. I love the smell of it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but chains and whips excite me. Another video, Overbeck claimed, showed young girls on stage performing in a drag dance contest, mimicking the dancers. This can only be called recruitment, promoting sexualization and sexual confusion to children, Overbeck told the county's election elected leaders. Douglas County Pride Fest held its annual event at the Douglas County Fairgrounds in August. During a drag show at the celebration, a performer's breastplate and false nipple were temporarily exposed. Videos of the performance had circulated on social media, where some commenters expressed frustration with the exposure and an event not designated for adults only. Organizers had sent out an apology, saying it was not a planned part of the performance. But the backlash continues even months later, ahead of this year's planned Pride Fest event. There are movies that have an NC-17 rating where no one under the age of 18 is allowed. These drag queen shows should be treated exactly the same. One commenter, who said she's from Parker, told the commissioners, The purpose of an NC-17 rating over an R rating is because some parents don't know what is wrong for their children. The commissioners voted unanimously to approve certain fairground policy updates. It appears that this year's scheduled drag queen entertainment would proceed as planned, not limited to an adult audience. One man argued the county shouldn't allow performers to wear certain tight clothing in front of children, saying it's an over-sexualization of our kids. I think this is an erosion of families. It's an erosion of family values, Michael Campbell of Castle Rock told the commissioners. And I do want to be clear. Nobody's stating that we should limit people's rights, rights to assembly, rights of freedom of speech, and to be themselves. But I do think that the appropriate measure the county should take is to recognize that this is an adult-themed performance just like any other strip club, and it should be not allowed for children. Art Kerzerkian, co-chair with the Douglas County Pride Fest, said the event last summer doesn't represent the values of the Castle Rock Pride Group and the Pride Fest. In contrast with the comments from the public, Kirkessian said he doesn't believe that drag, in and of itself, is sexually explicit. It can be just like a movie that can be X-rated or G-rated, Kirkessian said. We have to put in safeguards. As parents who are planning this event for our children, why would we want to put in anything sexual by nature in that regard? His group has a clause in its policies that prevents nudity at Pride Fest, he added. Those in his group wholeheartedly disagree with taking away the right from our parents to be able to choose what is appropriate for their children, he said. Douglas County was the cry of parents' rights during the pandemic and of parental right 
whether or not their children should wear masks. These people are asking you to prohibit our parents from choosing what is appropriate for their children, Kirkesian told the commissioners. The group's procedures will eliminate the sexual content of the lyrics and the activities that have been described as sexual in nature, he added. There is such a thing as a G-rated drag show, and we are here to prove that, Kirkesian said. County staff had proposed changes to the county's fairgrounds facilities policies, including an updated mission statement to state that all events are to be family-friendly. Another proposed change outlined that event holders agreed not to operate anything similar to a sexually oriented business as defined in the county's zoning regulations, according to the document of fairgrounds policies. The commissioners voted three to nothing to approve the fairgrounds policy updates. Commissioner Abe Layden appeared to push back on the tone of some comments during the meeting. We also recognize that in a community of nearly 400,000, not all families look exactly alike. And there are families that are different than your family and my family, Layden said. I will say, you know, if your view is that pride and gay people are not welcome in Douglas County, I'm going to disagree with you. And so will the law. If your view is that all drag queens are evil and out to get children, I'm going to disagree with you, and so will virtually any drag queen. He continued, We support freedom of expression and the Constitution, and we are not going to censor or book burn or tell people what they can or cannot say and express, because then again we have just become fascist dictators if we do that. Layden said LGBTQ youth are more likely to die by suicide and that it's important to share the message that there may be people that look differently than the mainstream and that that's okay. It's no secret that I am a Republican, I'm a Christian, I'm a father, and I'm also a member of the LGBTQ community. I support all of those groups, and those aren't mutually exclusive. I believe that the God I believe in loves all people, And there's really an opportunity to educate and inform one another at any age that that love exists, Layden continued. After the Pride event, as videos of what happened circulated, Commissioner Laura Thomas met with Kirkesian and others, and they understood what went wrong, Thomas said at the commissioner's meeting. They told me that there are parents who believe that drag is an art form, and they want their kids to see it. I see people in the audience shaking their heads, Thomas said. We also receive, as commissioners, complaints from people that want us to stop prayer at the fair and the rodeo. And so we have to figure out how we balance the needs of the community. Thomas clarified during the meeting that Pride Fest is not part of the county fair. Castle Rock Pride is a nonprofit building, a supportive community in the Castle Rock and greater Douglas County areas for LGBTQ plus residents. The organization's website says the nonprofit offers community events and resources, including monthly support groups, family meetups, educational opportunities, and the annual Pride Fest. Its website says set for August 26th at the county fairgrounds, the Douglas County Pride Fest includes local GPTQIA plus supporting exhibitors, food and beverage vendors, and live performances, according to the website. Make-A-Wish Colorado Alumni Volunteers Celebrate Its 40th Anniversary by Corrine Westerman 2023 has already been a big year for Make-A-Wish. Wish Week fundraisers have been in full swing at local schools this winter, and basketball legend Michael Jordan donated $10 million 
the largest individual donation ever to the national organization last month. And spring 2023 could be even bigger. Make-A-Wish Colorado celebrates its 40th anniversary this year and is hosting an anniversary celebration and fundraiser in April in Denver. Since it started, Make-A-Wish Colorado has granted more than 6,000 wishes for children with critical illnesses as a way of giving them hope and something to look forward to during their treatment. Golden's Ben Bondrager, 10, went to Hawaii for his wish last spring. He was diagnosed in early 2020 with Burkitt's lymphoma and was sick for almost a year, with his mom Sarah saying, We almost lost him a couple of times. Ben, who's now in remission, said going to Hawaii was the first idea that popped into my head because he wanted to get out and do something fun. I was sick of being home, he continued. Now, Ben and his family are becoming Make-A-Wish ambassadors so that they can help other families through the same process. Dad Jeff Bontrager and ben said Ben's wish was a bright spot to think about during those long days at the hospital, adding, The thought that Make-A-Wish has done it over and over for people, it's really amazing. Joan Mazak has been the proverbial fairy godmother for thousands of Colorado children after she founded the organization in 1983. She started it in honor of her daughter, Jennifer, who died at seven years old of a liver disease. Mazak recalled how, about a week before Jennifer's death, she was granted an unofficial wish to meet local radio mascot Kim Chicken. He stopped by the family's house, walked around the entire property hand-in-hand with Jennifer. Many of the neighborhood children stopped by to see Kim Chicken, but he was focused on making Jennifer feel special. It was great for her to be able to have that, Mazak said. After Jennifer's death, Mazak used funds that people had raised for a liver donation to start Make-A-Wish Colorado. There were only three chapters in the country and no national organization yet, she said. The local chapter was all volunteers working out of their homes, helping to create memories for children who needed them. Mazak said the very first wish was to catch a fish, so they set up a fishing trip at Dillon Reservoir. Longtime volunteer Gary Ubusi recalled wishes to meet the Pope and the Broncos. One of his favorite stories was sending a guitar to Bruce Springsteen to sign, him keeping that one and sending back his own guitar instead with a special message. Mazak said of wishes, They come in all shapes and sizes. There are so many logistics to putting together a single wish. It's different for every single family. About 20 years ago, Make-A-Wish Colorado started partnering with local schools for Wish Week fundraisers. Mazak said it's been a win-win situation as it helps instill philanthropy in the students and raises money for their sick peers. Plus, she always loves seeing schools' creative fundraising methods, like shaving teachers' heads or taping their principals to the wall. While financial contributions are needed, so are volunteers. Abusi described how meeting Make-A-Wish children and their families touches your mind and heart, so he works to help however he can, whether that's serving on the board of directors or speaking at events. Volunteering shows you how much that more there is to do, he said. We can't stop the problems, but we can ease the efforts and give the child something to dream about when they're going through the possibly most difficult time of their life. Both Abusi and Mazak stressed how much these children and their families need a sense that there will be a better tomorrow, as Abusi described it. 
They said these children also need to feel normal after feeling different during their formative years. Castle Rock's Jack Rodell, eight, might be a little shy, except when it comes to talking about the best day of his life. On November 14th, Jack was the guest of honor at a Colorado Avalanche game. He described the entire day in detail, saying he met the players, got his own jersey, and more. Jack, who wants to be a professional hockey player when he grows up, was diagnosed with leukemia but has been in remission for two years. His wish was delayed because of COVID-19. Over the past few years, he's represented Make-A-Wish Colorado at fundraising events, and he and his family are now becoming wish ambassadors, like the Bontragers. When your kid is diagnosed with cancer and you just live appointment to appointment, it's very lonely, his mom Crystalline said. In his head, he just feels different. It's nice to see other people celebrate him, and it's something he'll remember for the rest of his life. That's something Denver's Austin Swinton can confirm. Swinton, who's graduating from the University of Colorado Boulder this spring, was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure as a child and eventually received a kidney transplant. For her wish, she met singer and actress Demi Lovato at a July 2009 concert. After the two met backstage, Lovato pulled Swinton on stage and asked her to sing This Is Me for the crowd. Swinton said she didn't have stage fright at all, and Lovato sang with her. The two reunited last year when Swinton spoke at World Wish Day in California where Lovato was being honored for helping Make-A-Wish. Swinton, now 23, said her experiences with Make-A-Wish helped brighten her life when she needed it most. Looking back at how much I was going through at that age, I was only 10 or 11 when I was on dialysis. I was missing out on some of those peak childhood moments, she continued. Everyone says how much a wish impacts a child. You don't truly know until you're living that experience. Having a wish granted is the best day in a kid's life, Jack described, and now he's hoping he can help other children as an ambassador, paying forward all the kindness he received. People really helped me. And I want to help other people so they feel the same way, Jack said. I felt special. I felt really happy. I want other kids to feel happy. Help Wanted Lifeguards Pools around the metro area are gearing up to open for the summer. That is, if there are enough lifeguards. The years-long trend where pools have cut hours or closed altogether appears to be waning, though it's still a possibility in some places, according to aquatic managers across the Denver area, who are more optimistic than in past years, but still concerned as summer nears. For instance, South Suburban Parks and Recreation needs 250 lifeguards for its peak summer season, but has only 183 ready to go. Carl Brem, the Recreation District's aquatics manager, hopes to get closer to the goal as summer approaches, but wonders why applications are so slow to roll in. I have seen more and more less interest in the position, Brim said. He's been in the business for a long time. Brim worked at Elitch Gardens for five seasons and the Highlands Ranch Community Association for six, 16 years. He said he's seen a general lack of interest generationally from young people who want to do the job. Fewer people are becoming CPR certified as well, he added. I've often wondered why we're having those issues, Brim said. 
Back in the day, I remember if you didn't have your job by spring break, you weren't getting a summer job. The problem could affect South Suburban pools across the district, which serves more than 150,000 residents in Beaumar, Columbine Valley, Littleton, Sheridan, Lone Tree, and parts of Centennial and Douglas, Jefferson, and Arapahoe counties. If you can't hire enough lifeguards, hours at pools could be cut, Brim said. It's not for a lack of trying, though. The district has introduced incentives, bonuses, pay bumps, and more in hopes of luring in more lifeguards. South Suburban isn't alone. There's a national lifeguard shortage, which was exacerbated by the pandemic. Lifeguard shortages affected roughly a third of public pools throughout the country. In response last year, Governor Jared Polis announced a Pools Special Initiative 2022, in which Colorado introduced incentives. Chief among them was a $1,000 payment to those who completed lifeguard training to fight pool postponements and decreasing in operating hours. Now, out of necessity, hiring lifeguards is ongoing through the entire summer season, Brim said. Lifeguards for South Suburban make between $15 and $19.14 per hour, per South Suburban's website. A head lifeguard makes $15.75 to $19.93 per hour. But there are additional costs to South Suburban. Though lifeguards are generally seen as first-time, fun summer jobs, they must possess crucial knowledge regarding saving human lives. A full-course lifeguard training at South Suburban through Red Cross costs $175. Community first aid, CPR, and AED training, blended learning, costs $80. After 75 hours of work, South Suburban reimburses course fees, excluding the $40 certification fee. Despite such incentives, lifeguards still make less than sports officials at South Suburban. A youth sports official starts at $20 per hour. North of Denver, at Federal Heights, the Highland Hills Parks and Recreation, a youth baseball softball umpire makes $65 per 90 minutes. A Pilates instructor for Brighton makes $1 more than a lifeguard per hour. The discrepancy is notable, especially considering most lifeguards work on a part-time basis. Yet, the lifeguard numbers are booming for Highland Hills. Generally, the district employs roughly 300 lifeguards per season. This season, it's closer to 375, according to Director of Communications Joanne Cortez. The main focus in hiring and retaining their lifeguards at Highland Hills Pools and the massive Waterworld water park is legacy, Cortez said. Waterworld is in its 43rd operating season. We've been in the water park business for over 40 years, and we're very aware of the nationwide shortage of lifeguards, she said. I think that is what, what's helped us as we have a legacy pool of candidates. Kids often know Waterworld just from coming for the experience, and if one of their older siblings takes a job with us, eventually the ones that are following can't wait for their turn. We're just very, very fortunate in that way. Cortez said Highland Hills is committed to creating a memorable first job experience. It should be fun, but also taken seriously. It's a constant balance of managing a fun job and literally monitoring people's lives daily. Recruiting is big, and so are the incentives. The employees get free soft drinks, free membership, and even fun events like prom night during the season. 
Highland Hills has an end-of-season bonus as well, with the ability to earn an additional dollar per hour's pay. The lifeguard's pay ranges depending on the position, such as a guard lifeguard, a shallow water lifeguard, and a deep water lifeguard. On the Waterworld website, lifeguards are, making, are hired at $16.15 an hour. A lifeguard attendant makes $16 an hour. Returning lifeguards make slightly more depending on experience. Cortez said the main factor in keeping employees is how they treat them. We're in a very favorable position, but we're sad there aren't enough lifeguards to go around, Cortez said. Meanwhile, local pools and recreation centers around the Denver area have conducted pointed campaigns to ensure their numbers are sustainable and their pools are ready for the masses. While it remains to be seen if that strategy will work for South Suburban, it seems to be working elsewhere. Recreation centers in the city of Brighton, for example, are fully staffed ahead of the summer. They were last year, too. It's been tough at different agencies, municipalities, and neighborhood pools. There was definitely a lifeguard shortage the last several years, especially last year, said Jeffrey Hewlett, Assistant Director of Recreation Services for Brighton. But we were fully staffed last year. There have been a number of initiatives and incentives they've introduced to get ahead of the lifeguard shortage crisis, he said. It was a top-to-bottom effort in Brighton to make sure the crisis was minimized. Pay was a main focus. It wasn't too long ago they were paying lifeguards just $13 an hour, he said. Now it's up to $17, and it goes up each season for returnees. Head lifeguards make roughly $1.50 more per hour. Recreation benefits were expanded to the staff and their families, even part-time employees. That includes complimentary membership to the recreation center and discounts on youth programs. There's also an end-of-season bonus for those that work the entire summer. The grants from the governor's office gave Brighton flexibility to expand efforts in hiring and retaining employees. According to aquatic supervisor Nicole Chapman, it can be difficult to retain lifeguards for pools and centers too big or too small. Brighton, fortunately, was right in a sweet spot. Some of the much larger municipalities are running into an issue where physically the staff we hire are local kids who want to work at their local pool, Chapman explained. And if they get hired on by a larger municipality, the expectation is to expect your staff to be willing to work at any of your city rec facilities. And that's just not feasible for a lot of younger kids that don't have their own transportation. They're really looking there for a summer job around the corner. Brighton only has two locations, the Brighton Recreation Center and Brighton Oasis Family Aquatic Park. And Chapman said, and there, there are options for those living on either side of the city, but it's still a small enough area that employees can work at both locations. Perhaps back in the day, they could wait for the applications and they'd have more than they knew what to do with come pool season. Now, that's simply not the case. Recruiting is essential, both in the high schools and at job fairs, as well as providing affordable training opportunities and classes in-house, something Hewlett said they'd never do before. Brighton had 88 lifeguards in 2022, which is considered fully staffed. They currently have 70 lifeguards for the upcoming summer, but Chapman says she expects those numbers to fill out to 88 again, considering guards in training are set to graduate from classes by the end of the month. Meanwhile, back in South Suburban, 
Brim is looking for dozens more lifeguards to fully staff pools this summer. High school students and student athletes are encouraged to apply. They can learn valuable skills and essential life-saving procedures they'll carry with them forever, Brim said. Plus, it's an ideal time for student athletes to make money, considering many sports are inactive over the summer. As the pandemic continues to dwindle, the lifeguard participation numbers are expected to make a leap. But the job itself and those working it must be valued consistently to hire and retain those numbers season after season. We really look for not just kids, but really anyone who is going to take the job seriously and understand just how much of a vital role they play every summer in keeping the community safe, Chapman said. We really try to emphasize that with our staff, and there are always staff members that really take that to heart, and those are the ones we want to see come back. Finding a balance between making sure lifeguards understand the seriousness of the role and not taking all the fun out of the job is a fine line to walk, she said, but they have to walk it every season. Breaking Ground, Center for the Arts Evergreen Starts Addition to Gallery by Deb Hurley Brobes. It was a historic day at Center for the Arts Evergreen when officials broke ground on an addition that has been years in the making. Friends, donors, and gallery staff gathered on May 10th to grab shovels full of soil and to celebrate this milestone that will put a 5,000-square-foot addition onto the back of the building. This is an addition that is for the community and by the community, said Lisa Nirenberg, CAE's executive director. We have raised the dollars from members of the community, and it is being built for the community. She noted that art was part of everyone's lives, and CAE offers something for everyone, whether a CAE enthusiast or someone who attends an occasional event. And we want everyone to enjoy it, she said of the gallery, events, and classes CAE offers. CAE has been in the former Bergen Park Church at 31880 Rocky Village Drive since 2017, and it houses a gallery, classroom space, and staff offices. An addition has always been part of the plan. The two-story addition, which is expected to be completed in December, will have a state-of-the-art ceramics studio, private artist studios, a common artist's area, classroom space, community space for up to 200 people, staff offices, and a studio for an artist in residence. The price tag is $2.5 million, higher than originally anticipated, and CAE continues to raise funds to pay for the addition. To see more about the plans and to donate to the effort, visit buildourvision.org. West Jeff Baseball Raising Money for Fields Behind Wilmot Elementary by Deb Hurley Brobst. In the foothills, there are too many sports teams and not enough field space. West Jeff Baseball is trying to level the playing field, so to speak, and it is asking the community for help. It wants to raise $3 million to create a field complex behind Wilmot Elementary School, hoping it will connect via trails to the fields at Evergreen High School. The area would have enough space for two youth ball fields, or it could be converted into a field for soccer, lacrosse, or football. The organization hopes to raise the money by next spring, so the fields can be constructed in the summer of 2024. We talk about this project in terms of baseball, said Bill Jager, president of West Jeff Baseball, at a May 4th meeting to unveil the project. 
but it's an entry point to, to the intent of the project. If the space can be reimagined and revitalized, we hope it will be used by Wilmot and the community. Multiple user groups could use this. West Jeff Baseball envisions parking, stadium seating, batting cages, a concession stand and storage, a picnic shelter, restrooms, and sloped lawn seating. The organization is looking into whether it will be a grass or artificial turf field. West Jeff Baseball is working with the Army Corps of Engineers because the land is in the floodplain. Jeffco Public Schools, which owns the property, is on board with the project, and Stephanie Fritz, Wilmot's principal, is excited by the prospect of having a grass field behind the school that students could play on. Now, students play on dirt, gravel, or asphalt. Jager said West Jeff Baseball continues to try to make the foothills more child and family focused, and adding fields will begin to alleviate the gridlock when it comes to get high school, middle school, and sports organizations, practices, and games. West Jeff Baseball, for example, has 350 players on 29 recreational and competitive teams. It wants more fields because they are concerned the lack of practice space and the less than ideal fields are sending families down the hill to give their children better experiences. The organization believes that Wilmot Elementary is a prime location for more ball fields because it's easily accessible from both Evergreen and Conifer, and with Wilmot's playground nearby, families will have something to do during practices. Now is the time to better our community, and we are happy to lead the charge, said Chris Lewis, a West Jeff baseball board member. Money coming to DRCOG to tackle air pollution, environmental justice by Luke Zarzecki. The Denver Regional Council of Governments will receive $1 million from the Inflation Reduction Act to cut pollution and build clean energy economies across the Denver-Aurora-Lakewood Metropolitan Statistical Area. The Environmental Protection Agency announced the news on May 3rd. This program, funded through the Inflation Reduction Act, provides flexible planning resources to local governments, states, tribes, and territories for climate solutions that protect communities from pollution and advance environmental justice, a news release reads. According to the news release, DRCOG will collaborate with municipalities and communities to create a climate action plan while focusing on low-income and disadvantaged communities. The grants will be awarded and administered later this summer. This is the first step in a strategic effort to help our cities build common-sense solutions to reduce climate pollution, reads EPA Regional Administrator Casey Becker's statement in the news release. EPA looks forward to supporting locally grown projects that will make Denver area communities healthier and stronger. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.